0: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. Journalism is in the blood of MSNBC anchor Katie Turr. Her parents were household names who pioneered breaking news chopper reporting. But in her new book, Rough Draft, Turr writes unflinchingly about the pain that enveloped her family. In this conversation, first recorded on June 21st for Washington Post Live, Turr talked about what her father's violence cost their family...
1: And even though we had all these fancy things, we had these Porsches, um, a helicopter, a jacuzzi. uh, I went to private school. It all, we lost it all, including our health insurance. Lost everything because my dad just couldn't control his rage.
0: Tur talked about her father's transition from Bob to Zoe. It must really have sucked
1: trying to hide uh, the person you were for as long as she did. I mean, she was in her 50s when she decided to to
0: transition. And Turr talks about her path from local news reporter to covering the Trump campaign to the anchor chair.
2: So let's, ju- let's jump into this. So I think part of the reason you wrote the, you wrote this book was to spotlight the amazing career of your mom and dad, Marika and Bob Turr. Uh, with their Los Angeles news service, they broke the biggest stories of the 90s, the Los Angeles riots, the, the slow speed chase of O.J. Simpson, among countless others. Talk about their storied career.
1: They were amazing parents in a lot of ways, and they were incredible journalists. And I knew that I wanted to get this story down because in so many ways, it was completely unbelievable. I mean, my parents had nothing. My dad and my mom met when my dad was 18. My mom was 23. She was working as a um, ticket person at a, at a movie theater counter and my dad stalked her and asked her out a thousand times. Their first few dates were trying to find the Skid Row stabber in the late 1970s um, because apparently they thought it would be romantic to try to to break some news, I guess. And from there, they they created together this company called Los Angeles News Service from Nothing Again. My dad walked into a helicopter company and said, "Please let me lease a helicopter." And they said, "Do you have any cash?" and And he said, "No." <laughs> they lapped him out of the office. He walked into another one, had a business plan, and managed to convince the person there to hand him over a multi-million dollar helicopter that he had no money for. And from there, they started covering news in Los Angeles in a way that nobody else was doing. And they really revolutionized the news business. They were able to capture real-time images from the air in a city that, frankly, it's hard to get to anywhere in a timely manner. There might be a fire, but by the time you drive there, the fire is usually out. So they were able to capture things happening, stories breaking in real time, and, and they did it with much success. Pretty much every police pursuit you saw in Los Angeles in the late 80s and 90s was my parents' Malibu fires. You name it.
2: Mm-hmm. And in fact, you write that um, you, you were you rode along. You were in the copter, particularly in one fire where you were the copter was so close you could feel the 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 fire, the heat uh, on your shins or on your legs. Yeah.
1: It, it was incredible. We went along for a lot of the stories. I mean, it was just the helicopter was like another sibling. I mean, it it was part of my family. I spent more time in the helicopter than I did in my own bed. I felt more comfortable there than in my did in my own bed. And you again could feel the the heat from the flames covering the Malibu fires on your shins. We would cover the Rose Parade, which was my favorite uh, thing to cover growing up because it was like a storybook come to life. I got a an, a unique vantage point of Los Angeles. I became weirdly obsessed with backyard pools. Everyone in LA has a backyard (laughs) pool and I didn't have one, I really wanted one. Um, But I also got to witness uh, the city changing, sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better, right before my very eyes. And I felt like I was getting a, a, a real life lesson in how the world worked, even at a really young age.
2: Mm-hmm. And I you you caught me earlier looking down because i I have the book right here. And I was trying to find this, and I found it, this passage to sort of amplify what you were saying about your parents pioneering the the breaking news from the sky and always and always being first. And this story really got me. Um, my dad got a call from a fire department source saying there was a story in the parking lot of KABC. (laughs) I can't tell you what it is, the source said, but you'll definitely want to get there fast. He was right. Turns out KABC's own 11 p.m. anchor, an institution in LA, had been shot in a botched robbery just outside of the station. My parents got there so fast, they scooped ABC on the story and then sold the tape back to them, back to KABC. That in a nutshell, and I love that because that was Los Angeles News Service right there in a nutshell.
1: Just to be clear, the anchor ended up being fine, so don't worry about <laughs> right. him. Um, that was also Jonathan the night I was born. My mom oh, was that's right. that's nine right, months plus pregnant with me. She was 10 days past her due date with me, and she's caring. And back in those days, you know, you had a, a giant betacam and it was 40, 50 pounds, but you didn't get to roll tape on it. It wasn't even a beta cam. You had to hold, there was a wire that went from, the cable that went from the camera to the deck, and the deck is where you recorded the tape. And my mom was carrying this deck while she was 10 days overdue with me capturing that breaking news story, just waiting, waiting, I guess, to give birth.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, your parents um, had unbelievable success. Um, A hangar, I think, at the Santa Monica Airport, two Porsches. You didn't get the pool, but you got a jacuzzi. Um, (laughs) Nice house, got a jacuzzi, private schools for you you and your brother. But for all their success, you write, the business tore them apart. Their relationship was a mess. My dad clearly took on all of that stress and didn't deal with it well. And he took all of that stress and took it out on your mom and you. Yeah. I mean, he threw things and he threw fists, didn't
1: he? Yeah, listen, and, and just a note about pronouns here because I'm, I'm looking backwards. and um, The memories of my childhood, I use he here. I use she for my dad and we can get into this. Um, every time after 2013, when my dad told me um, that she was, um, not Bob Tur at all, but Zoe Tur. But since we're looking in the past, allow me to use he. Um, yeah, my dad had a really tough childhood of his own. Uh, his dad was violent and abusive. He was an alcoholic. He was a gambler. Um, he would gamble all the the family's money away. They would have to move in the middle of the night, evicted, or they'd just run because they couldn't pay the bills. Uh, he would take my dad to the racetrack and say, "Hold on to the rent money. Don't give it to me, no matter what." And then when he would lose the money that he brought to use and look at my dad for the rest of the money. When my dad refused, he would beat my dad up. Um, You know, he cut part of his ear off. He had a terrible, terrible, terrible childhood. And he had me, my dad, when he was so young, he was 23. They started this business. I think the weight of the world was really on his shoulders and he never really dealt with the trauma of his own upbringing, the trauma of his grandfather. Um, And, it carried on; that cycle continued in in our household. While not at all as awful as what he went through, there were still some pretty rough moments. I mean, there were holes in all of the walls, um, and the one I most specifically remember was one of my first childhood homes. I know it kind of carried on throughout but my first childhood home I felt like every other day we were plastering up a hole in the wall because he would punch the walls he gets so so angry and he would throw things at my mother and my brother and I bore the brunt of it here and there but more than anything it was just emotionally wretched at times because he would yell and yell and yell and yell and ultimately Jonathan even though we had all these fancy things we had these Porsches um, a helicopter a jacuzzi I went to private school, it all we lost it all, including our health insurance, lost everything. Um, because my dad just couldn't control his rage. And it just ended up being toxic for the business and for the people who were looking to employ him, even though my parents broke news and were unbeatable.
2: You know, you you um write about an instance where because they were hooked into all of these all of these news stations they could hear everything that was happening in the helicopter and you write about how at one station they put together like a bob tur's greatest hits that was more than an hour long and sent it to your sent it to your home um, it, was, it was
1: him berating my mother or sometimes throwing yeah. things. Um, yeah, that's that stuff is on tape yeah. and it's hard. It's really hard. Everybody would hear what was happening in the helicopter. My mom said that when they were covering big breaking stories that were important, everything was calm. It was great. It was those in-between times uh, that mm-hmm. got really bad. My dad got stressed and he would lash out. But it's an interesting commentary, Jonathan, on the world, on, on not just the news business, but the world at that time uh because everybody heard it they heard the abuse yet no one said anything about it they sent a tape to the house eventually but no one ever you know called hr (laughs) that i know of at least no one called the cops that i know of i mean my mom and i discussed calling the cops i discussed with her calling the cops and saying you know this has got to stop we've got to send a message but we didn't. I didn't because you know if my dad's name was in a police bl- blotter, there goes the whole business. There goes the way we make money. And it's a, it's looking back on it now as an adult myself, as you know, grown woman in the in the Me Too era, I, I realize that that's you know you know I realize very personally that that's the way this just continues. That's mm-hmm. the way that people get caught in these in these cycles and can't escape because their whole lives are tied to it.
2: You 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 write that you tried to bury that part of your uh, of your past, but you you gave that up after hearing disturbing audio from a scene in a documentary about your parents. What did you hear?
1: Um, my dad saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of, you know, I don't know how to communicate you except through violence. Right. and he was really frustrated with her in the helicopter. There's another scene in that documentary um where it's the last flight in the helicopter and it's really a, a, a gut-wrenching moment. Even I I cry cry when I watch it because the business has fallen apart and the helicopter is going back to the company leasing company and they lose have lost their contracts. My grandmother who was A member of the business but also like the glue that held the family together is dead and my dad is trying to my mom is taping my dad trying to wrap um intros and outros for all the footage that they thought shot over the years so they could repackage it and sell it and he's yelling at her and and my mom says you know "I, i i think i'm holding it straight i'm doing it my best the camera and she says don't hit me and it's awful it's an awful thing to hear and I found that I, I I was this was the middle of the pandemic when I the very beginning of the pandemic, right before everything went to hell when I saw this documentary. And then in the middle of the pandemic, my mom sent me the the server uh, that contained all of the news footage they shot over the years, every single uh, piece of it, thousands of hours. Also, all of our home videotapes, the stuff that the documentary was based on, the, the video, the documentary used. And in the middle of the pandemic, I felt really isolated. I was broadcasting from my basement. I was starting to wonder what I was doing with my life. Uh, Was journalism the career for me? Were we making things worse or were we making things better as journalists? Um, Do I need to quit? You know, I Mm -hmm. I got, got really dark in my head. And so when my mom sent me this hard drive, I realized that in order to answer the question of where I'm going, I had to go back and confront the things that I had been running away from.
2: Um, let's um all of this brings me to your father's transition from Bob to Zoe in retrospect. Do you think your your father's anger was driven by his dealing with or not dealing with his gender identity at the time?
1: You know, I'm not a psychiatrist, and mm-hmm. so I'm not going to venture to say where the root of everything was with any um, you know, that's for my dad to to answer definitively.. Um, I think though, not being your true self is a difficult thing. And I empathize with my dad for that. It must really have sucked trying to hide uh, the person you were for as long as she did. I mean, she was in her fifties when she decided Mm to, to transition. And I hate that it took so long for her to to be comfortable to, to announce who she was and to take that step. Um, and I wish that it was the, the move that made everything all better between us. Um, but unfortunately it didn't and, and not because of the transition, but because of her desire to wipe away everything before then to say, Bob Tur is dead. And my desire to, to say, hold on the things Bob Turr. Did are not dead to me. Bob Turro was my dad. And, you know, let's deal with it. it it's, mm-hmm. it's tough. It was a pivotal moment in my life. Um,
3: yeah, It was hard. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
2: Bomter called you to tell you that he was transitioning when you were covering the the Boston Marathon bombing in in 2013 um folks can read how that call went but i want to keep going on um, y- y- your father's lack of willingness to take responsibility um for what happened during your childhood um you you tried to you tried to talk about your childhood with with zoe but you write "Quote: It felt like my dad was using a get out of gender free card I didn't know existed. Why do you think Zoe Tur won't take responsibility for what Bob Tur did?
1: I think because she's ashamed, and she said as much. Um, she said so in the documentary about her life. At the end of it, she's ashamed for what she did, and she regrets it. Um, and I think it's hard to confront the, the the bad things that any any. I mean, if I." If, if it were me, it would be hard for me to confront it. Um, and I, I empathize with that. But I also know that, you know, as a mother myself, you have to confront the things that are hard and uncomfortable in order to move past them, to to gain an understanding of them and to, and to break that cycle. I mean, it's the same for our country. We've mm-hmm. got to confront the ugly parts of our past. We can't just bury them or pretend they didn't happen. We have to confront them to move on and, and be a better, country. Same thing with relationships. And, you know, while that was a real pivotal moment in my life, what I was finding, and this is, you know, part of what started to click for me over the pandemic, was that we're also faced in a, you know, really pivotal moment in in the world, and a pivotal moment for journalism in general. The way that we are able to speak to people, what we are able to to tell people how we are able to educate people. It's broken right now, Jonathan, I know you know this. And I think the the January 6th insurrection and all that we are witnessing now during these hearings is exemplifying um, an astounding failure of this country to, to come together on basic facts, an astounding failure of one man who happened to be president to accept the truth. But also, I wonder if we're going to look at ourselves as journalists. Isn't it also an astounding failure of our ability to communicate? Um,
2: yes. <laughs> I, I would I think the answer to that to that question is yes. You know when you spoke with CBS uh, Sunday morning, you said you decided to share um your story, including your family's dirty laundry because it is a great story to share. What can people learn from your story?
1: You know, I have been surprised. I didn't write this with any intention of um or any any thought that I would find anybody else who had been through something similar i knew I knew everyone has a a more complicated childhood than than maybe it appears from the surface. For instance, my husband had a wild childhood where his dad was a a drug smuggler and went to jail and disappeared from his life um which is probably why we are together because we're two crazy people um, with crazy <laughs> upbringings. But I have been surprised, Jonathan, at how many people have reached out to say that um, they had, while not similar in the details, similar in the broad strokes, experiences um, in their childhood. Estrangement is a big thing. I think one in four Americans are, have, are estranged, to, estranged to a close family member. And... <laughs> It's tough, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. a complicated thing to talk about if somebody asks you, you know, where's your dad? Where's your mom? Where's your sister? And I think that most people don't really know how to have that conversation, don't really know how to say it without feeling judged or feeling like they've done something wrong. And I, I, I certainly felt that way for a lot of time when I would have to talk about my childhood or anybody would ask me about, you know, how's grandpa doing with the grandkids? Um, and I, I think that it, for me, writing this book was a release. Um, just to say, this is this is a story, and it's complicated. And you know, I, I'd love to tell you the sugar-coated version, but the sugar-coated version is not the truth. Here it all is. Um, lay all your cards out on the table.
2: Let's we got to talk about your your career. Um, You rose up. Well, one you didn't want initially, didn't want to go into journalism. You wanted to run as far away from it as possible. And yet here we are. Uh, You rose up through the ranks of of local news, um, and covered tons of crazy stories. But nothing, I don't think, probably compares to your covering the Trump campaign in twenty fifteen in 2016 does it how
1: could anything compare to that I mean that was <laughs> I mean honestly, how could anything compare to it yeah I um I covered I chased tornadoes I covered crane collapses I covered plane crashes. I covered all manner of, of of tragedy breaking news, everything falling apart around me um but nothing could prepare me for other than maybe my childhood for for the Trump campaign and you know it was. It was interesting because I got assigned to it not because I was a politics reporter or not because anybody thought that the campaign would last, but because I happened to be in town. Donald Trump was making noises and they weren't going to put somebody on it that they thought would be here, you know, for the next 510 days. (laughs) I lived in London at the time. Right, that's why you were living in London then. I lived in London. I mean, I, I literally, I was here for a few days. I left milk in my refrigerator. I left clothes in the laundry. And I came back. And after that, I only spent the night in my bed in London, I think, like eight more times for for a year. And then by the time I uh, was done with the Trump campaign, I, I had moved out of <laughs> my <laughs> flat in London. My life had totally changed. But yeah, I mean, I get asked a lot about, you know, why did you stick with the campaign? Donald Trump would go after you. There were death threats against you. Um, he, he singled you out in a way he didn't single anybody else out. Why didn't you just say, Hey, listen, I'm going to go back to London and live the life I was living, go back to the French boyfriend I had and the, you know, the European lifestyle where I had wine at lunch. I mean, nobody would begrudge you that if you did it, but I found myself, um, riveted and that's not to say that I thought it was an amazing, great campaign, but it was the country changing in front of our eyes. And I wanted to try to understand what was going on. <laughs> and I mean, I listen, I've, I've still been trying to understand what's going on six years later. It's seven years later. Yeah. It's remarkable how this, how this country has changed. I mean, I, when I was here in 2015, when I got assigned Trump, that was when it was the weekend or the week that the day that gay marriage um, or same-sex marriage was, Upheld in the Supreme Court. It was a Mm -hmm. celebratory day. And I I thought to myself, wow, this country has come so far. Love really does win. And then yesterday, I find out that in the Texas GOP, the new platform, is that being gay is an abnormal lifestyle choice. Going from there to there in seven short years is, it's weird to me. What's going on?
2: it's it's frightening um um, you know you you are anchoring msnbc's january 6th um hearing coverage with andrea mitchell and, and hallie jackson has there been anything out of the hearings that have surprised you that surprised you
1: i think what has surprised me is how many people behind the scenes were saying this is not right this is corrupt this is potentially criminal how many people were telling him that he had lost? He lost. He lost. There was no fraud. He lost. You can't pressure Mike Pence. That is corrupt. He doesn't have the legal authority. You can't do it. He did it anyways. We're going to hear today about how he pressured Georgia officials. I'm imagining we're going to get a lot more information surrounding and Arizona officials surrounding the calls, the call that he made to Brad Raffensperger asking him to find those 11,000 plus votes. Um, I'm surprised at how widely accepted it was among his administration and how there were so many people that didn't come out and say that publicly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's not that surprising. It's depressing.
2: That's the word. It, it's depressing. And I'm still reeling from la- from the, the hearing where we learned about the pressure on then Vice President Mike Pence and how close he came to quite literally, be being assassinated. We, you and I could talk all day long, um, and we only have five minutes left, but I'm just gonna give a warning. We're going to try to stretch this just a little bit longer because there are two things I need to ask you about. One okay. is talk about being a woman in in, in this business, and the, the the things you had to you had to put up with as you rose through through the ranks. By dint of your determination and skill,
1: I think any woman coming up in any business will recognize some version of this. And you know, it's nice to have it out there. You get treated differently, and you get treated in a non-serious way. I hope it's changing. Uh, but when I was coming up in the business, I had a um, you know I had a meeting with my first news director, one of my first news directors, my first one where I was a reporter, and the the meeting was, "We love you. We think you're so great." We're happy to hire you, but you can't be on my station unless you change the way you look. He told me my boobs were too big for my clothes um, in so many words. He handed me a quite literal binder full of women, Jonathan, uh, that <laughs> contained a bunch of glossy images of haircuts that he wanted me to get. Short, severe bob cuts with streaky highlights, the kind of thing you would see at a, you know, in front of a, a mall salon in 1989. Mm-hmm. and it was the message that was given to me was it very much matters very much matters the way you look and then later on when I was I was climbing the the ladder I was at a a local station here in New York and um, WPIX and the assignment editor uh, you know sent me on a story about pole dancing as exercise and and it was a, a kind of a fad at the time but he didn't just send me to cover it. He said, "Hey, do you have any stripper shoes you can wear while you're doing this story? You can get on the pole and and do and uh, do some, you know, examples of of the routine." And I remember thinking, "You'd never ask any of my male colleagues to do this." A- and it just exemplified that in order to be taken seriously, I had to suck it up, and just smile and and pretend like I wasn't hearing those things, and then try to move on to get the harder news the the more serious story i had to fight for it prove myself in a way that some of my male colleagues did not have to Mm -hmm. and it's frustrating and i don't like it i don't like that you automatically assume that the the girl on the or the woman the young woman on your staff is the person that should go cover gossip girl like we're doing gossip girl segments to try to keep people into the news. Let's have her do it because she's the youngest woman on staff. Just assuming that it was, you know, a genre that I would naturally love to talk about as a news reporter. It, it felt really, it felt really dumb and mm-hmm. um, minimizing.
2: And, and that's one aspect. The other aspect, which you write about forthrightly in the book, is that. Um, when you moved, you moved to New York, you were dating Keith Olbermann, who at the time was oh, yeah. the giant at MSNBC. Um, countdown with Keith Olbermann, and you had to deal with the the chatter behind the scenes of people saying, yeah. "Well, you're getting where you're you're rising because of who who you're dating."
1: So there was a big age difference, and I think I, I kind of knew that there would be um, chatter going into it. I, I couldn't have been too blind to it. But I, I was surprised at the way that it was. People really grabbed onto it. I was in the New York Post a lot. I had you know, Fox News' PR team going after me, trying to get to Keith by taking down somebody that was close to him, so I was the easiest target. They dug up old photos of me from college where I was dancing with people, insinuating that I was, you know, a drunk slut or some version of that. And then I also felt like the people in my life that I, my colleagues in the jobs that I held were whispering behind my back. And some were, some were definitely. Calling me, you know, all sorts of names, saying that I only got to where I was because of who I was dating, and I'm sure they used a more colorful language than that. Uh, and even now, today, if somebody's trying to take me down a notch or try to diminish me, they'll they'll bring up Keith. and And you can just look at my Twitter feed and the comments on it. You get a ton of those. Um, well, she dated Keith Olbermann. That's the only reason mm-hmm. she's in the job that she's in. It, it's, you know. It, it it's part and parcel with this career, but it shouldn't be.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's also it's minimizing to use the word that you use um, to talk about the other a- aspects of your career. So that was then, and so now. Um, you mentioned your husband before, Tony DeCopel. He is um, anchor at at CBS at CBS Morning mornings. Um, you I saw. I think it was the interview you did with Nicole Wallace, where you said. With all the gushing that that you could possibly muster, I love my husband.
1: I do. And to I do. hear
2: you say that, I don't know if you remember. You and I talked when you and Tony first started dating. And it has never, I have never forgotten the the look on your face and the fervor with which you talked about Tony. And how you loved that man, and you were hoping that you would get married. And so to see that it went from the initial spark to see that it's still there um, is wonderful to see. And I want to close by asking: um, You wrote in the book that there were things in the book that Tony didn't even know. Um, how did how did he react to those things? And how did it, how has he reacted to everything you've put in this book?
1: You know, there were some nights where I I looked at him and I I, I worried that he thought that he had made a mistake. I was like, oh, no, do you love me less because of all of this? And that's what I was afraid of. I mean, are you going to love me less if I tell you all of my deepest, darkest secrets? And, you know, I would tell him a story and he'd get a look on his face like, oh, my God, that's horrible. And I'd start seeing it in a new light and realize that, oh, God, you know, maybe I'm maybe I've been sugarcoating a lot of this to myself. Uh, it was hard. It was hard to reveal it even to the person who was closest to me. But but he is he's the most wonderful person I have ever met. And he is such a strong ally and supporter and lover of all things Katie Turr that I don't think I could have revealed any of this to, to anyone else had he not been by my side. I, I just frankly could not have done this book. I could not have finished it. I would have. Stayed huddled in a corner <laughs> with my blanket over my head, crying. Mm-hmm. Or I just would have never confronted any of this, and I would have been, you know, threatening to repeat the cycle all over again. Tony's the best.
2: Having having seen the two of you together r- recently, I can I can confirm that Tony DeCoppo <laughs> is a lover of all things Katie Turr. Katie Turr. I'm
1: a lover of all things Tony DeCoppo. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Katie Turr, Mrs. Tony DeCoppel, MSNBC anchor and author of the, the raw but really well done rough draft, a memoir. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's great to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.